You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 29, The Liberty Riot. Last week, we discussed some of the letters and non-importation agreements that met the Townsend Acts. This week, the fighting gets a little more street-level as Britain attempts to enforce its laws on the colonies. On November 5, 1767, three members of the American Board of Customs arrived in Boston. This was about two weeks before the new Townsend duties would go into effect. It was also the annual Pope's Day in Boston, meeting crowds of thousands celebrated in the streets. Some of the new customs officials laughed off the lapel pins people had on, reading, quote, liberty and property and no commissioners, end quote. The creation of the new board had been the result of the Commissioner of Customs Act that I described back in episode 26. It was one of the Townsend Acts that was designed to enforce trade and tariff laws in the North American colonies. Before this board existed, most customs officials did their work in London. Top customs officials did not visit the colonies. Revenue from the colonies, even if enforced, would only have been a small fraction of overall revenues. So, officials in London did not really care if they squeezed another few thousand pounds out of the colonies through more strict enforcement. They were focused on the much larger duties collected in London and other towns around Britain. The new board would have its sole focus on the American colonies. As intended, their job performance would be graded solely on revenue and enforcement in the colonies. A necessary part of this change also meant that commissioners would have to be in the colonies dealing with the colonists face-to-face. One of the new commissioners arriving that day, Boston native Charles Paxton, took the Pope's Day threat seriously. The Stamp Act mobs had targeted his home two years earlier. Paxton had worked as a low-level customs official beginning back in the 1730s. He had been surveyor of customs in Boston beginning in 1752. Paxton was a target for tariff protesters throughout this whole era. Paxton had moved to London in 1766, though it is not clear exactly why. He was there in time, though, to lobby for a position for himself on the new customs board. Many historians also believe that he may have encouraged London to place the new customs board in Boston rather than a more centrally located port such as Philadelphia. Bostonians seem to take the decision to locate in Boston as a deliberate challenge to control of the city and its trade. John Robinson from Newport also sat on the new board. Recall John Robinson also had considerable experience in the colonies as a customs official. His attempts to impound the Polly two and a half years earlier for evading tariffs had landed him in jail for a few days and left him with threats of physical violence. Like Paxton, Robinson understood that this was not an easy assignment. Two of the other three commissioners, Henry Holton and William Birch, 
were both officials from the London Board of Customs who had no experience in America. The fifth member, John Temple, had been Lieutenant Governor of New Hampshire and also a survey of customs in the colonies. He apparently had a hostile relationship with Governor Bernard even long before this appointment, but other than that, I've found little about his life in the colonies, so I guess he seemed to keep a low profile. In general, the board consisted of men who were either very low aristocracy or prominent commoners who needed a good government office to support themselves, and all had already served lengthy careers in customs enforcement. Although Commissioner Pay was only half that of the thousand pounds sterling a year that London customs commissioners received, it was a good income with the potential of being promoted back to London if they did well in this assignment. The commissioners also had authority to hire staff and agents to do the actual work of customs enforcement. Many of these hires came from the old customs agents who were already working for existing authorities, who were now turning over authority to the new commission. So within two weeks, the board had set up its headquarters, organized its staff, and began collecting customs duties on November 20th. Four of the five members were present for this. John Robinson would not return to Boston until the end of January. The customs board enforced both old and new customs laws with an unprecedented level of diligence. But the townspeople did not make it easy. At first, Bostonians simply gave the commissioners the cold shoulder. The Boston Town Meeting voted that the governor could not use Faneuil Hall for an annual Election Day dinner if he invited the commissioners. John Hancock, a prominent merchant, also objected, and as head of Company of Cadets, he refused to attend the dinner if the commissioners were invited. The Company of Cadets was an honorary group of prominent members of the Boston establishment. They served as an honor guard for the governor. So when Governor Bernard told him that his attendance was mandatory, Hancock and most of the rest of the company immediately resigned. Locals threatened customs officials. Ships' crews regularly manhandled, detained, or otherwise prevented customs agents from searching ships and enforcing the law. On March 18, 1768, the anniversary of the stamp tax repeal, Bostonians hanged effigies of Paxton and the new Inspector General, John Williams, on the Liberty Tree. Officials heard rumors that protesters intended to destroy the homes of board members. A few houses were surrounded by ruffians screaming like Indians and throwing rocks through windows, but that's as far as it went. The harassment mostly seemed to be in the form of threats and social isolation, without resorting to physical attack. More importantly, though, low-level officials were physically prevented from boarding ships and doing their jobs. Remember, Boston had no police force at this time, and relied on its citizenry to form posses when necessary to enforce the law. There was no way a citizen posse would back up the customs officials. By February 1768, the customs board was already writing letters requesting military backup to enforce the trade laws. The naval commander in Halifax deployed three ships. The largest, a 50-gun man-of-war named the Romney, arrived in Boston in May. Now, despite the naval presence, Bostonians were determined to resist enforcement. One of the more prominent leaders of the resistance was a merchant named John Hancock, who I just mentioned had been head of the Corps of Cadets. He was also one of the wealthiest men in Boston. John Hancock is another one of those famous names that everyone knows 
primarily for signing his name in large letters on the Declaration of Independence while President of the Continental Congress. So now is probably a good time to talk about how he got there. Hancock was born in Braintree, Massachusetts in 1737 to the local minister and his wife. A minister's income was well above the wages of a common laborer, but still quite low by other standards. No one would have considered the Hancock family rich, but as a young adult, John quickly became one of the richest men in the colony the old-fashioned way, inheriting money from other relatives. John's father died when he was only seven years old. His mother was unable to support the family. A year later, in 1745, it was decided that John would go live with his uncle, Thomas Hancock, in Boston. Thomas was a highly successful merchant. Living there allowed John to attend Boston Latin School and later Harvard. John also learned the trade of a merchant, starting out as a clerk in his uncle's office. In 1760, he went to London for a year as a representative of his uncle's firm. A couple of years later, returning to Boston, his uncle made him a partner in the business. A year after that, in 1764, Hancock's uncle suddenly died, leaving him sole owner of one of the largest trading companies in America at the age of 27. His new wealth brought him to prominence in Massachusetts. He was involved in numerous communities, societies, and meetings. He had joined the Freemasons as well. The same year Hancock took over his uncle's business, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, and the following year it passed the Stamp Act. Hancock took a prominent role in the protests of these new laws. He started hanging out with other Boston radicals like James Otis, Samuel Adams, and Joseph Warren. In 1765, Hancock won a seat as a Boston selectman. A year later, in 1766, he was elected to the Massachusetts General Court, which is the name for the colonial legislature. But while he had developed relationships with Boston Radicals and shared their opposition to the Stamp Act, Hancock did not support the Stamp Act riots. As one of the largest landowners in Boston, he had good reason to avoid advocating mobs which could destroy the property of those with whom they disagreed. He even supported the arrest of Ebenezer McIntosh, the alleged leader of the Stamp Act riots, though officials had to release McIntosh after it became clear that a mob would release him by force if they did not. Despite his concerns over the riots, Hancock used his London contacts to protest the Stamp Act and supported the city's non-importation agreements. Although it appears that, ever the savvy businessman, Hancock had stocked up on items before the non-importation agreements went into effect and profited handsomely from the sale of those stocks during the time when no one could import new goods. Hancock also provided funds to Samuel Adams to help finance the protest movements. It probably made sense that he would want to remain on the good side of the man who could possibly direct future riots. But it appears Hancock generally shared Adams' opposition to British policies as well. Hancock also made a fortune through smuggling. All successful merchants evaded tariffs and often traded with other countries in violation of British trade laws. That was a good reason why Hancock was opposed to those laws and to their strict enforcement. Like many other merchants, he also refused to allow any customs agents to search his ships using force when necessary. Hancock had become one of those prominent merchants resisting the authorities, 
as well as a well-known political opponent of British policies. As a result, he was the biggest target when the Customs Board wanted to make an example of someone. Hancock's ship Liberty arrived in harbor at dusk in May 1768, about a week before the Navy arrived with the Romney. The evening arrival probably was not by chance. By arriving then, the captain knew that his ship would not be inspected until the following morning. Until then, the ship would be under the watch of only a few tidesmen, low-level customs officials who worked in the harbor enforcing customs laws. That evening, the captain of the Liberty asked Thomas Kirk, one of the tidesmen on duty, to look the other way while they unloaded the ship. The other tidesman on duty that night was either asleep or drunk, depending on whose account you believe. When Kirk refused to take the bribe and look the other way, the ship's crew locked him up below decks. He remained locked up for several hours while he heard people above apparently removing freight from the ship. The captain then released Kirk after threatening him not to talk about the incident. The captain declared a small amount of wine, but everyone knew the ship was capable of carrying a far larger cargo than what was declared. For about a month, Kirk said nothing. Eventually, though, he informed customs collector Joseph Harrison about what had happened. Harrison, eager to make an example of Hancock, instructed Kirk to sign an affidavit regarding his treatment aboard the Liberty. Kirk did so on June 9th. The next day, June 10th, Harrison, along with his son, who worked as a customs clerk, and Benjamin Hollowell, comptroller of the Port of Boston, seized the Liberty for failing to declare all of its cargo. The men personally walked down to the dock and had a crew from the Romney take possession of the ship. As often happened in such cases, a mob quickly began to gather and protest the seizure. They threw rocks as the boarding crew from the Romney cut the mooring ropes of the Liberty and towed the ship out into the harbor, where the mob could not retake her. At the ship's removal, the mob grew incensed. They attacked and assaulted Hollowell and the two Harrisons. They bloodied the men with clubs and stones, ripped off most of their clothes, and beat them savagely. The mob also attacked another customs inspector, Thomas Irwin, who had nothing to do with the seizure, but happened to be a customs guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. The officials, after some time, were able to escape to the protection of the Romney. Some accounts say a mob of two or three thousand took part. Others say it was more like five hundred. Whatever the actual number, the mob went unopposed. The sheriff could not raise a posse, and the guns of the Romney could not pacify a mob on land. The crowd then attacked the homes of Harrison, Hollowell, and Inspector General John Williams. Not a complete ransacking like we saw during the Stamp Act riots, but rocks through the windows, that sort of thing. They attacked the homes, but once they were assured that the men were not there, they moved on to other targets. The crowd also found a boat owned by Harrison, which they carried up to the commons and burned. The mobs raged into the evening, finally retiring for the night. Seeking to reduce tensions, the commissioners offered to return Hancock's ship on the promise that he would make it available when the matter came to trial. That meant he could continue to use it for many months that it might take before there was a hearing. Initially, Hancock agreed to this. However, Samuel Adams and others convinced him not to take his ship back. It would look like he was willing to work with the commission. 
In the end, the ship remained with the Navy until trial. The colony's attorney general prosecuted Hancock for smuggling many months later, in October. The Admiralty Court heard the case. Hancock hired John Adams to defend him. The only evidence was the single informant, Kirk, who had been the basis for the seizure. Kirk, of course, had been locked below decks and never saw the ship's cargo, who removed anything from the ship, or what was removed. The case lingered on for another five months as the prosecution tried to make an indictment that could go to trial. Given the limited evidence, though, the prosecution eventually dropped its case. Hancock never got back his ship, though. The Customs Board had condemned it and completed a forfeiture of the Liberty. They could not prove that Hancock had smuggled in undeclared wine. However, when they seized the ship, it was full of barrels of oil and tar, for which Hancock had not posted a bond nor obtained a permit to load. This was really a technical violation, since even merchants who intended to post bond and get permits often loaded their ships before doing so. But a technical violation is still a violation. The Admiralty Court found the ship in violation of trade laws, and the ship and its cargo were forfeited. Now, following normal practice, the court ordered the Liberty to be sold at auction. No one, however, would buy it at auction for fear of incurring the wrath of the mob. The Customs Board turned over the ship to the Royal Navy, which put it to work searching out more smugglers. Sometime later, in July 1769, after bringing two seized ships into Newport, a local mob boarded the Liberty, forced off its crew, and then scuttled and burned the ship. Prosecutors also attempted to indict rioters who participated in the Liberty Riot. That went nowhere, though, as those cases would be tried in civilian courts. Massachusetts elected grand jurors at town meetings, so the grand jury was made up of people who were at least sympathetic to the rioters, and some were probably rioters themselves. To give you some idea, one of the grand jurors was Daniel Malcolm, the guy who threatened to kill customs officials who wanted to look in his basement. Given how biased the grand jury was, no one wanted to come forward as a witness for the prosecution. Even customs officials or victims of the riots saw no point in making themselves even bigger targets for the Sons of Liberty by testing before a grand jury that would never indict anyone anyway. So to Governor Bernard's great frustration, the prosecution's came to nothing. The Sons of Liberty used the incident to strengthen colonial resolves to enforce non-importation agreements. Given the fact that there was no probable evidence of illegal activity at the time officials seized the Liberty, the Patriots published stories focusing on royal officials persecuting a merchant mostly because they disagreed with his political views. They had seized his property without justification and kept it on a technicality that could have been used against just about every merchant in the colonies. Adams drafted a petition approved by the legislature calling on Governor Bernard to expel the Customs Board from Boston permanently. For the time being, at least, the commissioners were not able to do much of anything. They dared not return to Boston for fear of attack. The riot also effectively prevented the Customs Board from operating until the arrival of soldiers several months later. They remained aboard the Romney for some time, and later they and their families would stay at Castle William. They would remain on that island out in the harbor for months under the protection of the British Navy. 
So the seizure of the liberty helped solidify Hancock's position as a leader of Boston's opposition movement. Hancock's reputation as a hero of colonial resistance to unfair trade laws only grew as a result of the trial. In his next election, his constituents returned him to office with even more votes than Samuel Adams. Next week, London officials, sick of letting Boston mobs control the colony, send British regulars to occupy Boston and subdue the rebellious colonists once and for all. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.